Let us pray. Beloved Father in heaven, you are blessed for granting us the word of your grace, in which you have revealed to us your will concerning our salvation. Teach us to love your word, diligently hear and willingly to learn it, that guided by this lamp, our feet may walk in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. A mountaintop experience is a fitting phrase. And if you've ever been at the top of a mountain, you know why. The perspective that you gain, the view that you have, assuming it's a clear day, can be breathtaking and is often the type of moment that you want to just take in and prolong as long as possible. On Lookout Mountain down Scenic Highway, about five minutes or so south from Covenant College, there's a hang glider launching point that faces west. And and just before it, there are areas along the mountain edge where you can sit and, and look out over the valley and to the west. As you might imagine, on a clear day, the sunsets are spectacular. And it was a favorite spot to visit when I lived on Lookout Mountain. In fact, uh, I took Deborah there on one of our earliest dates, though it was sometime in the afternoon, just to see the view. Of course, mountains play a significant role in Scripture, even as we've noted in past weeks in Exodus, particularly in Exodus 19 and Israel's encounter with Yahweh at Sinai and entering into covenant with Him there. Granted, Israel didn't uh, get to ascend uh, up the mountain, only Moses thus far as the mediator has done so. But given the fact that it's Transfiguration Sunday, which records another mountaintop experience in the Bible, it seemed fitting to take this excursus as we are about to begin the Lenten season. Transfiguration Sunday serves as a transitional Sunday, as a bridge into Lent by further identifying who Jesus is and by anticipating what will occur in Jerusalem. And given the past few weeks spent at Sinai and considering the imagery and theology that's there, perhaps as you heard the gospel reading from Mark 9 just a few minutes ago, you were quicker to make associations back to Sinai, seeing connections in the language and symbolism that's present in the text. So this morning we're going from one mountaintop experience to another. And while we might want uh, uh, that to be how we always experience life, Uh, even when it comes to our spiritual lives. Well, that's just not very realistic, nor how the Lord usually operates with us. Certainly, your own experience readily bears this out, and while such spiritual highs can be invigorating and encouraging, there is inevitably the descent back down into the regular routine of life. You know, what comes after Sundays? Mondays, right? And if you were ever a fan of the Garfield comics, you know Mondays are to be dreaded. Well, our text this morning definitely qualifies as a mountaintop experience. And Peter's all for sustaining this experience for as long as possible, isn't he? He's ready to set up a campsite there on the spot. But the mountaintop isn't the goal. Neither is the transfiguration itself, for that matter. No, we're here at the center of Mark's gospel, or just slightly past it, and some important things still lie ahead. But as we come to this mountain this morning, we also need to know what directly preceded this account in Mark's gospel in the closing section of chapter 8. And of what did it chiefly consist? And he began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, this is the first of three times that Jesus gives this teaching uh, in Mark's gospel. And he's challenging the common conception of what it means for him to be the Messiah, what it means for him to be a king and what the way of kingship looks like. Likewise, we're challenged to consider whether we have mistaken views of triumphalism that neglect the cross and how Jesus' identity as a sovereign is unmistakably displayed in his suffering. And it's with that immediate context in mind that we come to the transfiguration and are given a significant clue as to the purpose this moment serves. Not so unlike our tendencies of what it means for Jesus to be a king, I also wonder if we miss one of the chief purposes of the transfiguration. What God was impressing upon the three disciples, uh, Mark um, and the early church and, and us today. So where does Mark begin and how does, how does he connect this account with what preceded? Well, he gives us a time marker, doesn't he? And after six days, the significant associations that will be made clear as we go. But immediately there's a connection back to the conversation that took place on the way to Caesarea Philippi regarding Jesus' identity and Peter's confession. And then what follows after that? Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and resurrected. And then what happens next? Peter rebukes Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes Peter that he does not have in mind the things of God. And what are the things of God? Suffering, death, and resurrection. Then Jesus declared to the disciples and the crowd in chapter 9 and verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this is primarily referring to AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now put that fact off to the side for the time being, but keep it within reach because it's important for later. But now let's momentarily jump ahead. And what does Jesus talk about with the disciples in verses 9 to 13? In verse 9, he mentions resurrection. And then in verse 12, he talks about the suffering of the Son of Man again. Why is that important? Because this talk about suffering, the suffering of the Son of Man, it brackets the transfiguration. And I want you to see here at the outset, because I want you to see that here at the outset, because it's important for our understanding of this event. Furthermore, the transfiguration provides, uh, proves to be a linking point between Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. Now consider these points of comparison between his baptism and crucifixion. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. The Spirit descends. Jesus yields up his Spirit. A voice came from heaven. Jesus released a loud voice. After his temptations, angels ministered to Jesus. After his crucifixion, women ministered to him. Jesus' baptism is his anointing for kingship, for being the Messiah, the anointed one that received the Spirit, and then is set on his course for the cross. And in Mark's gospel, the greatest manifestation of Jesus' kingship is Jesus on the cross. But even in considering those parallels between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' crucifixion, we also hear similar themes here with the transfiguration. There's a declaration of Jesus' sonship, the presence of the Spirit in the cloud, and there's a voice from heaven. All of these things are hardly accidental. See, Mark wants you to link Jesus' baptism to his transfiguration and then his transfiguration to his crucifixion. 
And Mark records the transfiguration immediately after Jesus began to teach that he was headed for suffering and that the only way to follow him was to take up a cross. So whom did Jesus take with him up on the high mountain, which was very likely Mount Hermon near Caesarea Philippi? Peter, James, Jacob, and John. He took his three mighty men. And these are the three that accompanied Jesus for the raising of Jairus' daughter back in chapter 5. See, these three are set apart from the twelve. If Jesus is the chief cornerstone, then arguably Peter, James, and John constitute the other three corners of the church. There's precedent for this inscription, particularly in Galatians 2, where Paul refers to James, Peter, and John as pillars. You know, they validated Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So these three accompany Jesus, are chosen by Jesus for this mountaintop experience. And Mark doesn't waste any time telling us that Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no bleacher of woolen cloth upon the earth after this manner is able to make white. Jesus' transformation, the whiteness of his clothes cannot be copied. But what does this transformation, this brilliant whiteness, indicate? Well, understandably, we might think that Jesus' heavenly glory is being displayed. That his deity that's been covered up in his incarnation is now revealed. But that's not quite what the text is indicating, nor is it 100% theologically accurate. Um, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is not God the Father in disguise. Um, Jesus himself states to Philip in John 14, 9, whoever, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Philip didn't witness the transfiguration. Perhaps a better way to understand the transfiguration is that we're given a glimpse of new creation. Again, where are we? Six days later. Uh, even of glorified creation, of what will be in the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth. As Paul declares in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, has reconciled all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the, the image marred in Adam is renewed in the second Adam, and the transfiguration is a glimpse of that image even as Jesus goes on to accomplish that renewal through his death and resurrection. But there's another significant factor in understanding the transfiguration, which will hopefully shed some light on this occasion, no pun intended, and that's what Peter writes in his second epistle. In 2 Peter 2, verses 16 to 18, he makes this statement, which is a direct reference to the transfiguration. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what language... Um, Notice what language Peter uses to describe Jesus' transformation. He received honor and glory from God the Father. The Father bestows honor upon the Son. He imparts glory to Him. Even the voice comes from the majestic glory, the, the glory cloud, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' garments are glorified. Those robes associated with office, garments themselves, can also be a form of glory. And what Jesus has been called to the suffering way in which the Son of Man is going 
is glorious and honorable. That's part of the point here. It is made clear on the other side of the story. Well, what happens next? Elijah and Moses appear on the mountain and are talking with Jesus. Mark mentions Elijah first, whereas Matthew and Luke mention Moses first. But Mark's mentioning of Elijah first is hardly an accident and certainly fitting in this kingly gospel. Also, Elijah was mentioned by name in chapter 8 and verse 28 when Jesus asked the disciples about the, uh, what the people were saying regarding his identity. And then Elijah is mentioned three times in verses 11 to 13, the last being a reference to John the Baptist. And consider how John the Baptist, as a second Elijah, contrasts sharply with the first one. You know, as we, as we heard earlier, Elijah was taken up into heaven, never imprisoned by Ahab or Jezebel. John the Baptist, the second Elijah, was imprisoned and then beheaded by Herod and Herodias. In the teaching that Jesus provides here, he seems to be indicating that God's servants are treading a new path in these later times. Or put another way, John the Baptist prepares the way of Messiah not by smoothing the path to glory, but by paving the path to execution with his own blood. It's, it's certainly fitting for Elijah and Moses to meet with Jesus. Both were prophets. Uh, they both, both met with God on Sinai, on Horeb. Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, and Jesus will be leading the faithful out of Israel, uh, out of an Israel that's become an Egypt. In fact, in Luke's account of the transfiguration, he states Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There are also some interesting connections between the transfiguration and Moses going up on Sinai in Exodus 24, and hopefully we can make some of them uh, when we get there in our study of Exodus. But even think about when Elijah was on Horeb, uh, he was instructed to go and anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to take his place as a prophet. In other words, Elijah had to go back down the mountain on a mission. Well, with Elijah and Moses also on the scene, what comes next? Peter's response to what he sees. And the language is interesting here. It literally says, and answering, Peter said to Jesus. Well, who or what is Peter answering? The phrasing seems to reflect that Peter is responding to the situation. And he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then what commentary does Mark give as the reason Peter said this? For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter's nervous and apparently says the first thing that's on his mind but what is Peter's great mistake? He treats Jesus, Moses, and Elijah as if they're equals. And it isn't until the voice of the Father speaking that Jesus is clearly revealed as being unique from the other two. And maybe Peter's mistake is understandable. After all, Moses and Elijah are two of the greatest men in Israel's history. And certainly Peter, James, and John were awestruck by what they were witnessing. Well, they certainly were. I mean, they're, they're even terrified. But Luke tells us that Peter's suggestion of tents of tabernacles was spurred by the fact that Moses and Elijah were getting ready to leave. As one scholar observes, if Peter wanted to remain on the mountain, then he has incorrectly assumed that because Jesus now appears to him in glory, such glory may be given to him without cost. 
Jesus knows it comes with a price. It is the glory he will have at his resurrection. But now he must go down the mountain and leave the glory behind. Just as Peter didn't understand Jesus saying he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, neither does he understand this moment. And so the cloud overshadows them. And the voice from the cloud, the voice of the Father declares, This is my Son, the Beloved One. Listen to Him. So the the Father is setting His Son, Jesus, apart. And before the disciples know it, what happens? Just appreciate Mark's artistry in verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only with them. So God uses a dramatic illustration to make the point. And consider how appropriate this is. You know, who ministered after Moses? Who led Israel after his death? Joshua, right? Jesus is the greater Joshua. Um, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Jesus is just the Greek version of Joshua. Who was the prophet after Elijah? Again, after we heard in 2 Kings this morning. Elisha. And what kind of ministry did he have? A ministry of healing. And he performed twice as many miracles as Elijah, having a double portion of the Spirit. So Peter, James, and John need to recognize that Jesus is greater. And God signifies this by leaving them alone with him. And perhaps we can even conclude that if Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets, then Jesus is the fulfillment of them both and the embodiment of the gospel he declares. And it's hardly insignificant that the Father, the voice from the cloud, commanded the three disciples to listen to his beloved Son. You know, what were the disciples having a hard time with? Understanding Jesus, particularly this new teaching about the Messiah's suffering and death. But the transfiguration, the command from the cloud, further validate Jesus' mission, even Jesus' way. And certainly this moment on the mountain would have been encouraging to Jesus himself, which is hardly an insignificant point. You know, the Father affirms the Son that that he's on the right track, that, that he's doing the job he was given to do and going about it the right way. And as Jesus is more resolutely setting his course for Jerusalem... Well, this is a timely word of encouragement. But this scene is also further proof and testimony to the teaching of Jesus. It further validates what he's been telling the disciples. Perhaps we can say that Peter's being true to form. After all, who doesn't want the mountaintop experience without the suffering? You know, arguably, that's what Satan offered to Jesus in his third temptation. You know, the kingdoms of the world without the pain. And who wouldn't want to stay on the top of the mountain and be in that kind of communion with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? You know, that was an experience Peter, James, and John would never forget, perhaps only to be eclipsed by the resurrection itself. But for all of Peter's good intentions, it wasn't good for them to stay there, to remain there, was it? No, there were nine other disciples who weren't included, who weren't there. And even more, Jesus came to save Israel from her sins. And he couldn't do that from this particular mountain. No, he would do that on another mountain, on another hill in Mark's gospel yet to be encountered called Golgotha. And it will be from that mountain that Jesus will not only redeem Israel, but the world. Well, verses 9 to 13 recount the conversation that took place on the way down the mountain. And Jesus gave strict orders for the three to remain silent about what they'd seen 
and they obeyed. But when did Jesus say they could talk about it? After the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So that they keep this to themselves, but are confused. Why are they confused? Well, uh, for one, because the Jews weren't expecting a resurrection in the middle of history. They weren't expecting, they were expecting one at the end of history, the general resurrection, when all the dead are raised. And secondly, because the two disciples still don't understand, uh, the disciples still don't understand that the Son of Man must die. They're having a hard time with that, which is reflected in the question that follows. You know, remember, they've, they've just seen Elijah, but then he disappeared, and they ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now, what's this referring to? Well, it's the text we find in Malachi 4 at the end of his prophecy. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the scribes have this expectation. It seems reasonable enough that this Elijah will bring about a measure of reformation to Israel. Hearts will be turned back. But then, notice what Jesus does. See, he seems to blend Daniel chapter 7 and Isaiah 53 when he replies. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, it's almost as if Jesus is saying to them, you've been overly selective in your choice of Scripture. You're, you're forgetting these other texts and what they say. And then alluding to John the Baptist, he states, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. See, what's what's the implication of Jesus' words? That the same fate awaits the Son of Man. The same fate awaits him. See, as far as the disciples are concerned, Elijah is supposed to make things better, easier for the Messiah. He's supposed to pave the way and make it smoother traveling for God's anointed one. But as Jesus is teaching the disciples and endeavoring to get them to understand, the way that Elijah, that John the Baptist prepares, is unto suffering and death. Well, one final theological point that I want to set before you relates to Peter's recounting of the transfiguration in his second letter that we heard earlier and in relation relation to Mark chapter 1. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 9, 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And when is that? Again, arguably AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, guess what the greater context of Peter's second letter has to do with? Well, Jesus coming, his parousia, and that Jesus' prophetic testimony about this coming is 100% reliable. And then what does Peter appeal to in order to prove that? He appeals to the transfiguration. Follow Peter's logic. The glorification of the Son on the Mount of Transfiguration is an earnest of His glorification that will occur at the time of His power and coming on the day of God. More specifically, the voice that records that Peter records here is quoting from Psalm 2, which is about the enthronement of the Son of Yahweh. 
Peter saw a glimpse of Jesus enthroned as king, and as king he will come in power, and those who are diligent will enter his kingdom. The transfiguration is thus a preview of the parousia of Jesus, his vindication of his people, his vindication as king at his coming. The transfiguration is a preview of the glorification of the Son in his powerful coming to Jerusalem in AD 70. The transfiguration manifests the glory that Jesus would display in judgment on Jerusalem. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, that's, that's all fine and dandy and interesting and stuff. And, but what does that really have to do with Jesus' attempts at getting the disciples to understand him? Well, as hinted at earlier, the transfiguration is a vindication of the way that Jesus is taking and the way that he's teaching. The way to glory, the way to vindication is through suffering and cross. And this was not only important for the disciples to grasp, but also for the early church to whom Mark is writing, pre-AD 70. And it's important for us as well. See, the, the pattern, the way hasn't changed. And because Jesus was resurrected, because he was vindicated, then faith can be all the more assured that the same is true for those who follow him in that way. And as sure as Peter is when writing his epistle, that because of the transfiguration, Jesus is coming to that generation... So we can believe and trust that he will come yet again in glory to judge the quick and the dead, even as we confess each week in the Nicene Creed. And Jesus makes good on his word. He keeps his promises. And while I'm sure we we know that, it doesn't hurt to be reminded of that fact from time to time. And while I trust that the the big picture perspective is rightly encouraging to you, as it ought to be, that the, the second coming can still seem very far away. And so we also do well to consider and to take heart ourselves, take to heart ourselves, the command of the Father to Peter, James, and John to listen to him, to listen to Jesus. You and I need that admonition. We we need to remember to listen to Jesus. And maybe your first thought is to think that that's stating the obvious or that you really don't need that reminder. But consider again what happens in the story. The mountaintop experience ends and back down the mountain go Jesus and the three disciples. And along the way, Jesus talks about the resurrection and suffering. But what are they going back down to? You know, if we were to keep reading Mark's gospel, what's next? A boy with an unclean spirit and the failure of the disciples. They're going back down to ministering in the muck and mire of life that is still plagued by sin and suffering. We could say that they go back down to the life of a struggle and wrestling with sin without and sin within. That is the daily experience of our lives, the reality with which we are all intimately acquainted. And because that's true, one must continue to listen to Jesus, whose words are able to sustain us when tingling visionary moments have grown dim. See, mountaintop experiences don't last. And not every day of the week is Sunday. Inspiring, and inspiring theological conferences will only last so long. Even if you get to listen to your favorite preacher as often as you want on your phone, computer, tablet, or whatever, that doesn't necessarily produce an exhilarating spiritual experience. And eventually, you must interact with real people again. No, there are the regular mundane duties of each day 
working, cooking, cleaning, teaching, schoolwork, getting along with your spouse, your children, your siblings. Times when you're irritated, tired, feeling impatient, stressed, overwhelmed, when you're not feeling particularly spiritual. Yes, it's precisely in those times when you need to listen to Jesus. You need to hear and heed what he has to say to you for such moments. That you are to endure, be kind, be patient, to be forgiving, be understanding, trustworthy, truthful, and faithful. And a host of other things that come to you from his word without sensational fanfare. See, the, the mountaintop experience further displays the way of the cross. Even as that later mountain, Golgotha, will demonstrate. And it's for your faith to recognize this, to, to believe this, and to continue on knowing that this way is the way that leads to glory. And is the way that God will bless, even as He makes you more like His Son, your Savior. A pretty good argument can be made that the church today finds itself in a similar context as the early church in the Roman Empire who offered to people a new community, a new family, a new tribe even, as they proclaimed a new kingdom that had come in Christ Jesus. And how did that kingdom spread? By planting churches throughout the empire and by the men, women, and children in those churches following Jesus in the way of the cross. Taking up the cross following Him, and imitating Him in the pursuit of the greatness that comes in service. That's that's what Mark's gospel is conveying, and after the transfiguration, what's the next major event that Mark records? What's the triumphal entry in chapter 11? What we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So, So theologically, Jesus' teaching has a certain focus. Mark's gospel has a certain focus between the transfiguration and Palm Sunday. And Jesus is going to teach two more times about his coming suffering and death and encounters in Jerusalem and then eventual resurrection. But see, all of that then matches, that, all of that focus then matches the time between this Sunday, Transfiguration Sunday, and what we will find in Palm Sunday eventually as well. Be sure to grab a copy of this week's newsletter and uh, Pastor Shades and read Pastor Shades' weekly perspective about how to approach the Lenten season. It it, it dovetails perfectly with this point um, and the the outward thinking and application of these principles that we should have. But also consider that as we take up our cross and follow Jesus in this way, we're listening to Him, we're obeying Him, and we are governed by His Word, even over and against what culture, what society, what the empire might be promoting or teaching. And we're instructing our children in the same. And we recognize that we may very well be um, in the minority, that our voice may not be the loudest, and that faithfulness to Christ may be more costly in America um, in coming years than it has ever been before. But we can be ready, we can be preparing, because on a daily basis, we're taking up our crosses following Jesus in this way in which he leads us. And still more, consider that he nourishes us for this very life through his body and blood. The very signs that picture this way and strengthen us for it. We gather on this mountain, we gather at this table, and we commune with the beloved Son of God. And we behold his glory in bread and wine 
And then he sends us back down the mountain for the mission that he's given. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, behold the glory, the glory of the Lamb of God, slain for sinners. Behold the honor bestowed by the Father to the Son for His faithfulness to the point of death, even death on the cross. And know and believe that Jesus has forever changed the world and the new creation has begun. And as we follow Jesus in His way, as we listen to Him and obey, know and believe that the Spirit is transforming you from glory to glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel of Mark, for this account of the transfiguration. And may You be pleased to impress it all the more upon our hearts, that we might bear fruit to Your honor and glory for the building up of Your kingdom, for the growing of Your church. We ask that you would grant us greater faithfulness, a greater understanding in the weeks to come of who you have called us to be in Christ our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.